Okay, last time I told you I was going to try to keep it shorter, and I ended up going even longer than I did the first time. So, um, last time we looked at a pretty lengthy introduction to the letters to the seven churches, and to we, we also saw the letter to the church at uh, Ephesus. Uh, and so, it, it went a lot longer than I thought it was going to be, and I'm going to try to keep them shorter so you can consume them better, but that's probably going to mean, I'm realizing now, that I'm going to just have to take one church at a time. Uh, we're just going to look at one. That means that we're going to, there's six more. So there'll be six more lessons in chapter two and chapter three. Um, I know that stinks for folks that want to hurry up and get to the visionary portions of the book, but the reality is I can't overstate how important these first three chapters are to how we interpret the rest of the book, because it's given us the context. It's given us the, the audience. It's given us the circumstances the audience is going through. So we're going to take, we're going to take our time and we're going to look we're going to look at it from there. So let's see how far we'll get. I hope you listened to all the comments that we made uh, before uh, talking about Ephesus because they're really important in understanding the letters to the seven churches and understanding the book of Revelation You know, as a whole. Uh, I'm talking about the introductory things that we talked about before the the church of Ephesus. So if you didn't listen to that section, the church of Ephesus actually includes probably 15, 20, 30 minutes of introduction to the letters. You probably need to listen to that before you listen to the the rest of this. So we're going to see of, you know, we're going to see this more and more. The next letter uh, is to the church at Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was, uh, it's about 35 miles north of Ephesus, and uh, it was a city of about 100,000 people. Uh, Pliny the Elder is a, a philosopher and a writer from that era, and he tells us that uh, Smyrna was one of the judicial centers in the, in the province. And, and, you know, there was a medical school established there in the first century B.C. That's before Christ. So uh, it's going to be, you know, the uh, 100 years earlier to the time, 150, 200 years earlier to the time that, that John was writing Revelation. Um, so this wasn't just some... You know, little hick town. Uh, there was a gymnasium there, a theater there, bathhouses, a stadium in, in Smyrna. It was it was a it was a large large city, and Smyrna had uh, it had a lot of pagan temples in it. There was a temple to Zeus, uh, the, the temple to the goddess uh, Sibylle, to Dionysus, to uh, uh, the goddess the goddess of Rome. Roma was the name of her in, in that city. Uh, they had uh, all kind of different pagan deities for you know this and that. Uh, the imperial cult was also well established in Smyrna at the time that John wrote. The imperial cult is the worship of the of the Caesars, the the temples built to the Caesars in AD twenty six, twenty three twenty six, right in that area. Uh, a temple was built in Smyrna that was dedicated to Tiberius Caesar. So. Uh, we have historical writing showing us that dedications were made to the Caesars. You know, they took place all around the city. And we see the same phenomenon here uh, that we're going to see everywhere else. The the Romans enforced uh, the worship of Caesar. You know, they didn't mind that, you know, they didn't mind you worshiping your own gods. But, uh, you know, you better include include theirs as well. It wasn't wasn't necessarily like Romans were knocking on people's doors and dragging them out of bed if they didn't if they didn't you know worship the way they said to worship. But you were uh, if you did not um, 
you did not take part in the the pagan festivals, the pagan deities, the 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 ceremonies that you know these these feasts and festivals that would be going on through the city and the 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 worship of the emperor and the and the the gods and goddesses. You were you were pretty much ostracized in the society. You were uh, people had a very low view, even people who were not. Uh, just anti-Christian people had a very low view of Christians because they they refused to take part in in, in society. They were seen as uh, haters of humanity. You know that's what uh, I think it's Tacitus called them. Uh, or it might have been Suetonius, but they called them haters of humanity because they just refused to take part in any of these things. And of course, we know it was because they uh, refused to worship anything or anyone other than other than Jesus Christ. So uh, being involved in these sacrifices, being involved in these rituals, being involved in these uh, feasts and festivals that uh, were, you know, go throughout the city and sacrificing, offering a, a, a honorary sacrifice to the emperor and all these things. It was part and parcel of being subject to the Roman Empire. Uh, it was it was widespread through Asia Minor and through the whole Roman Empire that uh, you know, you couldn't be economically prosperous or have a greater social standing if you did not participate in some degree uh, in this in this Roman cult. Citizens of both upper and lower class were required by law to sacrifice to the emperor, you know, on various special occasions, uh, you know, feasts, festivals, the different times of the year. And uh, some city officials were so dedicated to the cult that they, you know, even paid for uh, out of the public funds for sacrifices to the emperor. And so it, it was impossible to share in the public life without having uh, some part in this uh, in this Roman imperial cult. And so those refusing to participate were seen, they were seen as politically disloyal. They were unpatriotic. Uh, some would be arrested, punished, according to Roman law, exiled, you know, executed. But strangely enough, there was uh, there was one group of people that enjoyed religious exemption from being forced to adopt Roman gods and traditions and, and the actual worship of of the Caesars as deity, uh, and that was that was the Jews. They were exempt because this was part of their ancestral tradition. And over the course of history, you can see uh, that every time every time even the Romans tried to force. Uh, the the Jews to uh, adopt some kind of what they consider to be idolatrous practice, you know they would rather they would rather die. There are some very interesting stories that uh, Flavius Josephus tells about even Pilate in uh, in Jerusalem who tried to get you know he brought in the Roman insignias into the temple area and the Jews just uh, I mean they they sat. It had like a sit-in and just they were they were going to take execution rather than allow him to do that and so they they were exempt from having to to deal with this and so there was also a, a sizable jewish community in smyrna as there were in all of these cities ephesus smyrna all these and uh the the christian communities were they were not just persecuted by by the roman imperial might they were also persecuted by the Jewish uh, people as well. And you can see this in the book of Acts. I mean, if you just read through the book of Acts, the first persecutors of the church 
uh, were the Jews. So you got the Romans, for one thing, trying to get all these you know festivals, feasts, pagan deities, Caesar worship. You got the Jews in the city as well that, of course, you know the Jewish objections to Christianity. Jesus is not Lord. He is uh, you know, uh, not the Messiah. And, and those who claimed him, uh, you know, they, they could you know, called blasphemers. But there were also these trade guilds in every city. And uh, we're going to talk more about those when we get to, to Thyatira. Uh, there were goldsmiths, silversmiths, bakers, you know, whatever. They had each had a guild, you know, for their particular profession in, in these cities. And they had their own festivals. They had their own ceremonies, sacrificing to their particular gods to give them prosperity and, and, and success in their profession. And, and, you know, we have, there's Latin inscriptions that we have from the region that shows you know these kind of guilds these kind of uh, uh, professional societies throughout the area and if you refuse to take part in these festivities ceremonies you were ostracized from the community uh, ostracized from the community of trade workers and you would suffer your your economic life would suffer greatly so what we have that's a whole lot in one in one sitting but really what we have summing up is at the same time, you got three factors that are going on in, in each of these cities, really, to a greater or, or a lesser extent. You have the the pagan culture that's putting financial, social pressure on the believers to conform. You know, we want you to be part of our festivals, our feasts, sacrifice to our gods, uh, come and, and, and share a meal uh, with us that with food that has been dedicated to Dionysus or Zeus or whatever. And uh, the Christians were refusing that. You have the Jewish community in the city who believe the Christians were blaspheming God. And then you had the Romans who they really didn't, I mean, to be honest, empire-wide, they really didn't care about the Christians as long as you know as long as they were seen as part of Judaism you know the Christians were just a sect of of Jewish people uh, the Romans really didn't care I mean they really didn't care the Christians kind of kept to themselves they were kind of you know it's a little weird you know they they meet kind of in secret and they they have part they take part in this little feast that they say is the body and the blood of this guy that they were it was kind of weird from their perspective but hey you know it's just their sect of Judaism but when when Christians start becoming identified as a separate group from the Jews when the Jews start saying hey they're not us and then those Christians refused to include the emperor in their worship. They refused to take part in these feasts, these festivals, these these uh, uh, things in, in societal life. Uh, then that's when persecution, imprisonment, and, and even execution would follow. And it wasn't like an edict from the emperor, you know, that all Christians will be killed. Uh, at this point in time, it was just sporadic and it was local. You know, uh, the the Jewish populace, just much like you see in the book of Acts and even in the Gospels, the Jewish populace would come and they would say, they would say, these guys are not part of us. And they are saying that Jesus is their king and they are subverting the Caesar. And then the Roman authorities in that city would take action to quell this uh this belief and so that's kind of how it went and so this is the this is the backdrop of the city of smyrna so if we read in verse 8 it says um and to the angel this is chapter 2 verse 8 and to the angel of the church in smyrna write the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this now here we, we got the same pattern as before the audience is 
to the you know the angel of the church of Smyrna. We've covered what that means in, in previous episodes, and the introduction of Jesus here. We have the same thing. It, it uses one of the symbols that we saw uh, from chapter one, where John saw uh, Jesus. The first and Jesus says, "I'm the first and the last," and he was like a son of man, and he was walking among the candlesticks. He uses uh, one of the symbols that we saw in chapter one. Here, he's the first and the last, the uh, the one who was dead and has come back to life. We we saw in chapter one that Jesus saying he was the first and the last last is uh, is taken from Yahweh's words in Isaiah forty four six and Isaiah forty eight twelve. And we showed from the context of those Isaiah passages that these statements pertain to his sovereignty and his control uh, over history. Uh, You can see the second part of chapter 1 if you want to uh, hear more about that. But he says he is the first and the last, so he accomplishes by his decree whatever he sets out to accomplish. This kind of language coming out of Jesus' mouth would have been extremely offensive and blasphemous to the Jews. Uh, So here, I mean, here Jesus is saying the the exact same phrase that Yahweh says in the Old Testament. He's he's applying to himself what is only true of God in the in the Old Testament. And the church in Smyrna uh, needs to understand this because they are a severely persecuted church. But we're going to see that they're also faithful. They're being persecuted because they refuse to compromise God's truth, uh, refuse to give in to the pressure of the various elements of society con- to conform. Uh, Jesus gives them, in this letter, he gives them no word of rebuke, no word of warning, only an exhortation to hold on. This church is suffering greatly and and will suffer even more in the coming times, but in God's eyes, they're doing well. And they're encouraged to continue. Uh, In in fact, he's going to encourage them to be faithful uh, through their persecution, even unto death. So they need to know that he is the one who is dead and resurrected. That's part of the structure of the letters. He always introduces himself using a phrase from chapter 1, but it's a phrase that is particularly uh, applicable to this particular church because he lives. He is the one who died and lives again. They will also live, even though their faith in him, uh, you know, through their faith in him, I mean, and their their, their steadfast witness uh, is is going to cost them their lives. I mean, they're about to die. He says, be faithful unto death. They need to know that he is the one who is in control. Uh, nothing they will endure is outside his will, and their suffering isn't isn't the last word. Just as he is dead, he was dead and is alive, they'll rise to live eternity, to live eternally in uh, in his presence. And so Jesus uses this introduction to um, to encourage them. He he. His purposes, his presence among them extends far beyond their present trials and their tribulations. And he's the same today. When we're suffering, being faced with pressure to conform to the world, uh, Christ gives us the same encouragement. Hold fast. I am the one who is with you. I also died. I am alive forevermore. Because I live, you'll live also. Look what he says to this church in in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty, he says, but you are rich. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And look what else he knows. He says, I I know the slander of those. The word is blasphemy. I know the slander of the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So let's take this sentence apart and look at it. Um, We've already seen that life as a Christian in Smyrna wasn't easy. 
at all. There was uh, much tribulation for for believers throughout Asia Minor. Uh, you know, as we have talked about, those that are holding faithful and refuse to conform uh, meant that they would suffer in in one form or another. Uh, the important things that these believers need to understand is that Jesus Himself, the Lord of all, He knows their trials. He says, "I know your tribulation." Uh, he's told them that he's the great I am, the first and the last, and he's the one that's moving among the lampstands, which are the churches of God. Jesus is intimately involved in the care of the churches, and that includes those at Smyrna who are going through tribulation and poverty. He sees and understands the purpose behind all their afflictions and all the injustice that they face. They can rest assured that he knows, I know your tribulation. But besides all the tribulation they face, and probably part of, and parcel of the tribulation that they faced was the fact that they were enduring, enduring poverty for his name. They were, you know, probably denied business or even denied ability to apply their trade unless they participate in trade guilds or the city's ceremonial festivals. You know, who, who knows? There was all kind of ways that economic pressure could be put on them. But because the Christians would absolutely refuse to take part in any of these pagan rituals, which were you know the normal social economic activities of life they were increasingly marginalized and ostracized from society itself uh, but even though they were poor and suffering as they were faithful to christ in smyrna jesus himself says i know that you're poor but in reality in reality you're rich now when we look at some of the other uh, churches we're going to notice that the christians in some other churches aren't suffering like these guys are they're not being persecuted like these guys are and in those churches what we're going to see is christ gives them a warning he says hey you're tolerating evil you're conforming to the world and he, he warns them about that but here in smyrna they refused to do that and the result was persecution the result was poverty the result was tribulation uh it, it's interesting it's interesting to me to note that these Christians don't have any rebuke. They were they were rich in the eyes of Christ because they were holding faithfully to his to his word. Uh, in the face of trial and persecution that they faced, they were they were faithful. They were rich because they they were laying up treasures for themselves in heaven, choosing to serve Jesus and, and be a witness to his lordship and his cross rather than to conform to the culture. You know, the culture increasingly pressured them to bend to their to the will of the culture, the society. And they looked at them, uh, and and even though the city of Smyrna was wealthy, the city of Smyrna was wealthy and prosperous. The Christians endured abject poverty because of their faithfulness to Christ. But but look what else they endured. Jesus says that he knows their tribulations. He knows their poverty. They're, they're really rich. He says, but he also knows that they're being blasphemed. They're being slandered by those who say they are Jews, but they're really not Jews. Now, the Jews were the only class of people, like I told you before, that were exempt from conforming to the Roman political worship standards. They... Um, they held to their traditions as as did the Christians and had throughout through the centuries, you know, they fought tooth and nail to refuse to allow Rome's worship practices in their midst. Uh, and, and in Rome's eyes, like I told you before, Jews and Christians were pretty much the same thing. Christians were just part of what it meant to be Jewish. They're one sect of Judaism. But here in Asia Minor, the majority of the Christian church we're not Jewish converts. We, we, we've come to a place now where there's more Gentiles in the church than there are Jewish converts. And, and the Jews often made sure that the people knew 
that they were not part of Judaism, and that brought that brought the the condemnation of the state, the authorities, down upon their head. A commentator who wrote a big, huge technical commentary on Revelation, on the Greek text of Revelation, his name's Greg Beal. He um he he, he writes this. Let me read this. Uh, let me read this quote to you. It says, Until the latter part of the first century, Christianity enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism, which was tolerated by Rome. The Jews were not forced to worship Caesar as God, but allowed to offer sacrifices in honor of emperors as rulers and not as gods. But after the Neronian, that's Nero, persecution of Christianity came under suspicion, uh, since new religions, Christianity came under suspicion since new religions were not acceptable in the empire. And Jews who sometimes had no qualms in uh, semi-revering other deities along with their Old Testament God often were only too willing to make the Roman authorities aware that the Christians were no Jewish sect. So you see what's happening here is that the Jews of the city of Smyrna were were slandering the believers on, on two different levels. First, they were bringing charges against the believers with the Roman authorities, making sure that the Christians were exposed as a new religion. They're not part of Judaism. They're not uh, subject to the, to the uh, exemptions that we enjoy. Uh, this would have prompted, prompted the, the Romans to enforce the political worship of the Caesars uh, on the believers. They, uh, they also probably informed on them, accusing them of, subver- of subverting the authority of Rome and uh, accusing them of treason against the empire. And this would surely have brought uh, the wrath of Rome upon them when a, when a local magistrate or a governor you know when when treason subversion or uh, uh, a rebellion was even thought to be taking place uh, they came down on it hard they came down on it big time because even if it wasn't something that would actually threaten the roman empire uh, if it if they caused a stink in the city uh, caesar would replace the governor you know he would replace him they'd, they'd take him out of there and he'd fail to do his job sometimes they'd be killed and so anytime there was even a hint of, of rebellion or anything like that they came hard down upon him rome for the most part in the first century enjoyed peace he had enjoyed uh not having to deal with enemies from the outside you know there's a few rebellions here and there and we're going to see that that peace was interrupted with the the war in in jerusalem but reality was they they had it was called the pax romana it was the peace of rome and so when there was anything somebody says hey this guy over here is a traitor he's subverting the empire uh they would come down hard on him and so the jews were they were informing. They were informing on the the Christians because they believed the Christians were blaspheming uh, their God by saying that Jesus was the Messiah. But on a deeper level, you see Jesus is telling the church here that he knows the blasphemy that's being smoke, spoken against them. So, the, like I said, the word that is translated as slander here is, is actually the word blasphemy. Those denying that Jesus is the fulfillment of of Judaism denouncing Jesus as nothing more than you know a common criminal crucified in Judea, uh, the, they are simply blaspheming against God. So the Jews were were blaspheming against Christ, uh, and when they were doing this, they were actually actually although inadvertently they were joining forces with the Roman authorities against God uh, Himself. They were they were um, they were persecuting God's people. It says here Jesus says. 
I mean, God challenges the very idea. Jesus challenges the very idea that those who call themselves Jews, God's people, are actually Jews if they deny Christ. Uh, he says they call themselves Jews, but they're really not. Jesus says that they say they're Jews, but but they're not. No one would say that they're a Jew except those who were holding to Judaism, the ones who were circumcised, the ones who attend the synagogue in the city. Uh, they would have said they're the sons of Abraham. We are the sons and daughters of the covenant. Uh, we follow the law and the prophets. We teachings of Moses. We are the chosen people. I mean, you can you and I can see this attitude through the Pharisees throughout the New Testament. It really reminds me of John chapter eight when the Jews are standing around Jesus. They're arguing with him, saying that Abraham was their father, and Jesus says, "If Abraham was your father, then you would love me." Uh, but look at what Jesus says about those who hold to the law of Moses to be right with God and the ones who reject the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's covenant. He says, I know the blasphemies of those who say they are Jews but are not. Instead, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Throughout the, the Old Testament, the people of God are called the congregation of the Lord, the assembly of of the Lord. Uh, the word assembly is the word ecclesia, and it is also the word in the New Testament that, that's used for the church. If you hear the word church uh, in the New Testament, it's the word ecclesia. It's also in the Septuagint, it's also the word that's used to translate uh, to the congregation of the Lord. They, uh, and so Jesus is contrasting the church of the Lord, the true assembly of the Lord, with those who reject Jesus. They are, and I think he uses the word intentionally, a synagogue of Satan. Only one group met in synagogues. Only one group claimed to be Jews. But Jesus said that those who reject the Son do not have the Father. They may truly be a synagogue, but unless they gather in worship and adoration of the Son of God, uh, the Son of God, the Son of God, they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's some commentators that claim that uh, these are this synagogue of Satan, the ones who say they're Jews but are not. They're actually Gentile Christians who adopted Jewish customs and joined themselves to synagogues, but. A group of Gentile Christians gathered together wouldn't constitute a synagogue by any Jew, by any Jewish standard. And it, to be honest, it's really unlikely that one group of Gentile Christians would slander another group of Christians to the Romans, uh, because that, that'd bring persecution on everybody. You know, they, that, that claimed the name Christian. The Ro Romans didn't care. Uh, so even if Jesus is talking about heretical Christians here, like the Nicolaitans, we're going to see some of those, or the the followers of the era of Balaam here, we're going to talk about those in the, the next city. Um, it wouldn't make much sense for them to bring charges against other Christians, knowing that the Romans would just lump them all in together anyway. Um, it is it the language that he uses here is specific. They say they're Jews and they are actually a synagogue of Satan. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because there's a lot of people that, and I, like I said before, a lot of people going to disagree and, and and you know whatever. That's fine. But if a person is of Jewish descent and yet denies Christ, God says. You know, you got one master or the other. You know, you you can't eat from both tables. You can't drink from both cups. You you you're gonna you're gonna be part of one or, or another. And if those of if a person of Jewish descent uh, nationality, uh, if they do not follow Christ, uh, the Bible's clear. They cannot have the Father. You cannot have the Father 
unless you come through the Son. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me. And then you take that into account with Ephesians chapter 2, where uh, Paul says that Jesus uh, has made both groups, both Jew and Gentile, one uh, new man. Uh, Paul in Galatians chapter 3 also says that all those who are of the faith are the children of Abraham. Um, he is talking about uh, Jewish belie- Jewish people that are uh, accusing Christians and making it known that they are not part of Judaism to the Romans. They're accusing them of sedition and uh, subversion, and Rome began coming down hard upon them. We're going to see that. I'm going to explain that a little further in the next verse and, and try to prove my case to you. Uh, the next verse that we're going to read here, verse 10, it lets us know that the slander, blasphemy these Jews were committing against the Christians uh, was intended to expose them to persecution by the Romans. Verse 10 says, this is Jesus speaking to the church at Smyrna. He says, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. It says, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation for 10 days. It says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Jesus said before that he knew their tribulation and the slander of the Jews, but here it's not those who say they are Jews but are really not that are going to actually throw them in prison. He says it's the devil that's going to cast them into prison. In these Gentile cities, the Roman, you know, the, it was the Roman province of Asia. It's not it's modern-day Turkey. It's not the continent of Asia that we have today, but the Roman prov- province of Asia is where these cities were located. The authority to cast people into prison wasn't found in the synagogues. Uh, it wasn't found in, in the general populace, but it was found with the magistrates and the city officials, the Roman officials. This isn't like Jerusalem, where there was also religious authority, you know, around the temple there were guards in the temple and jails for the religious prisoners and the sanhedrin could dish out punishment if they wanted to this is not like that this is the the authority there was the roman magistrates if the believers were getting thrown into prison it was at the hands of the city government so the jews who enjoyed special freedom from political worship of the empire made sure that the romans knew that the christians weren't under that umbrella of protection and that probably included accusing them of sedition subverting rome's authority uh, which would have brought the Romans down on their heads. And that's what he says. Don't be afraid. Uh, the devil's going to throw you into prison here. But there's something more behind the persecution of the believers in Smyrna. Jesus tells them, look at this closely now. Jesus tells them that it is Satan who will throw them into prison. The word Satan means the accuser, the adversary. And it's that's exactly what Satan does. He accuses the brethren day and night. You can see that in Revelation 12.10. Believers in Smyrna need to know that this is not just a run of bad luck they're going through this is not just circumstances in which they live this is a spiritual war that's raging satan himself is bringing persecution slander blasphemy against the disciples of christ but look what it says they also need to be aware that god is the one that's in control even though it looks like everything in the world's coming against them i mean just imagine what it must have been like to be a christian in smyrna i mean the authorities demanded that you worship the emperor the jews continually accused you before the romans rejected your faith in messiah and on top of all that the whole culture and the economy of the city was built around worshiping these pagan gods for one reason or another uh, if you stood faithful to christ in these conditions you lose everything and you'd inevitably inevitably be arrested possibly executed but Jesus wants them to know that God is in control. Look at the reason uh, 
that uh, Satan's going to throw them in prison. Jesus says it is so that you may be tested. Uh, some translations will say tried. The devil will throw you into prison. Satan will throw you into prison so that you may be tested. It's Satan behind the Jews and the Romans that are bringing the persecution of uh, uh, and prison to the Christians. But God has a purpose behind it all. God is in control and they are going through all this so that they will be tested. This is the overarching message of the book of Revelation. Stand firm in the testing of your faith. Even when the world comes down on you and you have to suffer greatly for your faith, you don't compromise. You don't alter your hold on the truth and you don't cave into the pressure of the world. You will be tested. Make no mistake. God allows all this to go on so that your faith will be tested. He says some of you will be thrown into prison so that the reason you will be thrown into prison is not because God's not in control. It's so you will be tested. Your faith will be tried. And then he says you'll have tribulation for 10 days. In the Roman Empire, imprisonment was not usually a punishment in and of itself. Uh, instead, it was really only meant to house people while they awaited trial and then punishment would be given. You know, and this would include execution sometimes. So what we see here is not a promise of uh, temporal deliverance. It's not that, hey, it's only going to last 10 days. You know, keep it, keep it up. It'll be okay. Uh, they are exhorted here to be faithful unto death. Uh, they may very well lose their lives. So this exhortation to be faithful unto death puts a nail in the coffin of all those preachers who are pushing that prosperity stuff of the best life now preaching. They aren't being called upon to hold fast, and God's going to reward them with health, wealth, and prosperity. It won't last very long. It's only going to last 10 days. Uh, they're called to hold the faith of Christ unto death because it is the truth. And when they stand before God face to face, he says, I'll give you a crown of life. But why why 10 days then? Why 10 days? The 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 tribulation for 10 days. There's um there's lots of speculation about the length of time, but this is what I think given John's propensity for using the Old Testament in his imagery and especially his use of Daniel in his in his imagery. I I, I feel pretty confident that he is using an allusion here from Daniel chapter 1 verses 12 uh, and 13. Um, this is where you'll remember, I'm not going to read the passage, but you'll probably remember this is where Daniel and his three Hebrew brothers, his three Hebrew friends, ask uh, to be tested for 10 days as they eat only vegetables rather than the king's food. Uh, Daniel and his three Hebrew boys were uh, uh, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. They were brought to Babylon. They were being forced to assimilate to the culture of Babylon. They were forced to uh, take new names. Uh, they were forced to eat the king's food. And they convinced their overseer to let them eat vegetables for 10 days as a test to see if they you know wouldn't be more healthy than the other captives and of course you know the story they they were proven right and incidentally by the way just on a side note uh, using that as a daniel diet is probably the stupidest thing i've ever heard in my entire life 
uh, because Daniel, it says Daniel was more healthy after he spent 10 days on vegetables. Uh, he, he didn't lose weight. He gained weight. And so in the same way, he's, you, that was free. You don't owe me nothing for that. In the same way here, John is saying to the believers in Smyrna, he says, your faith in Christ is going to be tested. Just like Daniel stood against the conforming to the Babylonian society, you're going to stand. You're going to be put into prison. You're going to be tested for that 10 days to, to stand firm in the faith and see if God will not deliver you. He says explicitly that they're going to be thrown into prison so that their faith will be tested. Just like Daniel's was, that test that lasted 10 days. He tells them, just like the Hebrew boys did, they are to remain faithful even to death and they will receive a crown of life there was a man named uh named polycarp who uh he was actually the bishop of the city of smyrna uh this is going to be uh early to mid second century i think he became bishop in smyrna like 115 so this was a little later than uh, the writing of revelation but this guy could have very well been he could have very well heard or read this letter sent by John. He was actually uh, uh, a disciple of John many years earlier, uh, and that's from church tradition. Well, that's not Bible, but he was commanded. This is this is the story of his martyrdom. Is uh, it, it? It really goes along with what John is telling the church at Smyrna here. Uh, he was commanded by the Roman governor in the province that he must pay homage to Caesar as Lord. And um, Polycarp chose to die rather than to deny Christ. He was burned at the stake. His last words were, and they're really famous, uh, he says, 86 years, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And they burned him alive. Uh, this believer in Smyrna took serious this Polycarp, he took serious what Jesus said to the church there. In verse 10, Jesus says, those whose faith is genuine and proven to be genuine, though through testing, they will receive eternal life. They will receive the crown of life. Now, get this. The being faithful is not a work that must be accomplished by the force of will to receive eternal life. The purpose of their trial is to be tested to see if their faith is genuine. And the endurance and faithfulness to Christ is the evidence that their faith is truly genuine. And this is what it means to overcome, to the overcomer, to the conqueror, I will give a uh, crown of life. Uh, this is what it means throughout Revelation to conquer. They overcame the word through their faith by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The crown of life is simply a, a symbol for eternal life. Uh, the word crown here is not the word uh, diademos, which is where we get the word diadem. It's like a royal crown, a ruler. It's the word stephanos, which which is more like a victory crown. If you um, think of it, if you ever seen like images of Romans or you know maybe Julius Caesar or something like that, you probably saw them with a like a wreath, you know, a leafy wreath around their head. Uh, that was the Stephanos. That was this crown. They would wear that around their head. They, you probably seen all kind of 
little wreaths around their heads and sculptures and all that kind of stuff. They were granted this crown for uh, victory in battle, a victory in the Olympic game. You know, the winners of the Olympic games were given victory wreaths that go around their head. Uh, they were the symbol of victory and overcoming. Jesus says, I will grant the overcomer the, the crown of life signifying that his faith has been victorious. And then again, this is restated in verse 11, uh, the eternal life, saying the second death will not harm him. Verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Standard, that's going to be in every letter. Uh, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Although the crown of life, get this now, the crown of life, uh, that Stephanos, that uh, victory wreath, is received at death. He says, you you be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. The real threat, the real danger, is the second death, which is being separated from God for eternity, being thrown into the lake of fire, which we'll see later. Uh, but that, that threat doesn't pose any problem for those who trust in Christ, those who are faithful to death. Um, they, they, don't have, they don't have to worry about being hurt by that death, even though they go through a martyr's death here. Uh, the letter to the church at Smyrna is instructive for all believers today. We live in a world that's filled with idolatry and pressure to conform to the society in all kinds of ways. You you may not have faced persecution in the form of prison or execution, but many believers around the world are, and they're, they're going through that today. Today, we here in the Western world, we tolerate and conform to all kinds of worldly things, and most of the time we're facing far less consequences than prison. Uh, We see people who call themselves believers who capitulate and look just like everyone else in the world, uh, deny the truths that are clearly given to us in Scripture. We see people that call themselves believers supporting ungodly laws, unrighteous entertainment, uh, just everything that pits itself against the truth that Christ represents. If... uh, if Jesus expected this suffering church in Smyrna who faced pressures from every side to stay faithful unto death, what would he expect for uh, us modern readers who aren't even coming close to that type of persecution but are just uh, being pressured to conform to the, the, to the dictates of our own society, our own worldliness? You think he would expect us and command us and demand that we be faithful in the face of all this? Uh, I think the answer to that is pretty clear.